Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Nick the Tooth Gulo. You might know Nick from being the childhood friend of the UFC's Dana White. But what some people don't know is that Nick is an AOJ, art of jiu-jitsu, black belt under the legendary Mendes brothers. Nick has had a fascinating life, some of which he shares with us on the show. He truly is a renaissance man. In the episode, we talk about the beginnings of AOJ, his BJJ evolution, lifting every day, 3-in-3 training, partner selection, 50-plus BJJ, competing, what is the Mushin mind, van-slash-camper life, traveling, his sci-fi writings, moving to Italy, and so much more. Okay, some housekeeping notes. This interview takes place at 2 a.m. for me in California and 10 a.m. in London, where Nick was. The audio can be tricky at times because Nick is speaking through his earbuds and you can hear coffee being made in the kitchen at times. Stick around for the Easter egg at the end, touching on this. Just a reminder to give us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show. And consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt. Like our page at Forever White Belt. Follow us at TikTok at Forever White Belt. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And if you're ever in beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Also make sure to mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Nick the Tooth. All right, Nick. Welcome to the show, man. What's going on, brother? How you doing, man? Good. It's so early for me. It's even earlier for you, right? <laughs> yeah. For all of you, just so you know, Nick's in England right now. Nick, what are you doing in England? I know you have a daughter that lives there, right? Yeah. My my daughter, who used to train with me at uh, at AOJ, oh, wow. she, uh, she, she married a Brit a few years ago, and... Uh, and now she lives in London. So I spend a lot of time here and it's great. I mean, the community, at the end of the day, for me, traveling is all about jujitsu. Wherever I go, wherever I, you know, wheels down, the first thing that I do is see who I can train with, you know? Mm. So I've got a great jujitsu gym here, a great tribe, Ross Nichols. It's crazy because Ross Nichols, I saw him in a match against Lachlan Giles a few years ago. And wow. I was like, no gi match. And I was like, holy shit. I think I watched that match. I like, I studied so much jujitsu and I watched that particular match with those two guys probably 20 times. And so, uh, you know, I was such a big fan of Ross. And so the moment I got to England, I was like, who is training around here? Because London is massive. It's kind of like in California where people would be like, oh, you live in LA. And I'm like, they're like, I'm going to come train with you or come see me. And I'm like, first off, I don't live in LA. I lived in Newport Beach. And Mm -hmm. second off, even if you live down in Laguna Beach, which is still in Orange County, it's still an hour drive to get Mm -hmm. wherever you got to go. And an hour is a long time. And so I needed a gym that was very close to my daughter's house. And so I found out that, uh, so I hit Ross Nichols and it turned out that he was just undergoing construction on a gym by her house and it was called London Grapple. And so last summer I was here and we would just train in the midst of all this construction debris and concrete and shit. He just threw down just temporary mats and we just trained all summer. And so I was, it was cool because I was there throughout the construction and also there for the grand opening of London Grapple. And so they're like family to me. 
And what's really cool is that's how it was for me at AOJ. Yeah, I was there at the beginning. I used to go into AOJ during the construction of that gym also and talk with the brothers and, you know, what's going on. For those of you that don't know, Nick's AOJ, Art of Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt. Yeah, that's right. I started under there with the white belt. Your life does seem like this series of Forrest Gump, the movie type of situations where you seem to just be in the crosshairs of all these important historical events. It's really wild to have watched and, and seen your journey thus far and how it continues. Doing a lot of research on you, I saw before that you even were living in a van that you had renovated, sort of hashtag van life, with your wife. At one point, we lived in Florida. I was driving down the road and I saw like a silver Airstream for sale and I pulled my truck over and I was like, I want to buy this thing right now. And I just went and got cash and bought the thing and brought it home. My wife was like, what is that? And I'm like, I'm renovating this thing. And so I started renovating it and uh, I renovated that. And then we jumped in that like two years later and we traveled the country when our daughter was very young and she was like 10 years old. And we lived in that for a while and uh, did kind of the van life, but airstream life thing. And so that's what brought us out to California. I wanted to surf more. I was like, Florida, there's not enough surf. And so I wanted to surf more and I wanted to raise her out in California. And so we did that. And that's when I got out there like two years later is when AOJ opened. And that's when I started training at AOJ. So we had already done kind of the, you know, living like gypsies thing. And that's when I got back out on the West Coast from the East Coast when my childhood friend Dana White hit me and he's like, dude, come to a fight, come to a fight. And he had been asking me to come to fights forever. And so I was like, all right, now that I'm on the West Coast, I'll go. And so I went to a fight. I was not into MMA at all. I was a surfer skater, you know. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. That's such a meathead thing. I don't want to mm-hmm. be, I don't like yeah. MMA, you know? I remember seeing MMA when it first came out with Voice Gracie, and I was like, yeah, it's cool, but it's kind of like pit fighting or any yeah. other, you know, nonsense. So I was really reticent to get involved. Although I first saw and did jujitsu, I think my first jujitsu session that I ever did was with Dana White in like 1999 at the bottom of what became the UFC headquarters. And it was Dana and I and John Lewis, who was a BJ Penn black belt. And so John was kind of showing us some things and he became a UFC fighter. Or I, I don't know if he was a BJ Penn black belt or he just trained with BJ and helped BJ. I don't I don't know what the lineage there between them was, but uh, he was affiliated with BJ. And at that time I did it and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. But I wrestled from eight to 18 and I mm-hmm. didn't want to go back. I don't like, ever like to go back and do, I like to do things and then go to on to the next thing. And so I was like, I don't want to get back into wrestling. To me, it was so like wrestling. But once I started, started, you know, once I was traveling with Dana and started going to fights with him all over the world, I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book on this. This is really cool because I had such crazy access that no one has ever had, you know, yeah. backstage and photographing backstage and all that. And so once I decided to write a book on UFC and on the MMA in particular, I realized, okay, I need to really, I know I know wrestling, but I need to learn a martial art and jujitsu just seemed like the most natural thing. And once I started, I just fell in love with it. It was amazing. I started training seven days a week. AOJ, the openings of that. What were those early days like? I mean, you were there before there was any uniforms or anything, right? 
anything. Yeah, it was just madness. Yeah, it was really cool. In particular, what was so cool about it was the fact that because the brothers were so in their prime, they were competing. I mean, competition, they were in the heat of it. Mm. And they didn't know how to run a gym yet. And so the Mm. gym was very much just a comp class. The whole gym was a comp class, you know? They never said, oh, if you want to sit out, you don't have to spar or anything. It was just expected that you sparred. It's very different now. Some people are going to compete, but the majority of people were not. But that Mm -hmm. time, it was so competition-oriented. And Mm -hmm. because they were so competition-oriented. And because I came from wrestling, I did not want to get any gi. At that point, I was like, I don't want to wear a freaking gi. I would rather just learn no gi. You know, it's so much closer to what I do. But the majority of the school at that point of the classes were gi classes. And so in the very back on the small mat is where we would do no gi and Hoffa taught every single class. And yeah. And so because he and as he taught every single class, there were only 10 of us. You know, Mm. there were 10 to 12 of us and that was it. And we didn't have uniforms. I used to come out of there, you know, with a black eye at least every three weeks. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. And so I like really honed my, from the get go, I honed my nogi with sparring with hot. I sparred with him every single day. It was very, very different then in that respect. That's so interesting, too, because I remember hearing you say that you actually got to witness the evolution of Hoffa's game, for instance. Yeah, what I really think I saw change a lot in was really his passing. Yeah. And so for me, it's what's crazy is what I love about jujitsu and how cerebral it is, is that I'm a black belt now and I've spent so much of my life studying and training jujitsu. But it's still there's so much. It's like a lotus flower that continually unfolds. And so for me, like this past like year, I've really focused on passing. And it's so amazing to like learn and watch the old video of him and the way that he passed then and his mm-hmm. evolution into speed passing and to really break it down to just see how that change happened. And so, yeah, I was there and got to see and watch how he would just drill. He was incessant and always drilling and drilling and drilling and working on things and working on things and how that that progression from that old school kind of passing to you have to understand Gi and Hoffa pass very, very differently. But to see how, you know, that Gi style passing Hoffa moved from that towards that more speed passing that he did in some of those in that Hicks and Cup highlight video. You know, mm-hmm. Tynan represents to me a lot of what uh, that Gi style passing and Hoffa just is just passes so differently. And that was that's really the beauty of training under the both of them because their games are so different. Well, speaking of, I'm interested in your game as well. You know, and I've asked this before, should a student's game reflect their instructor's game? And would you say your game is his game? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, at some point, you know, I would say once I became a purple belt, I had to become my own sensei. You have to be very, very self-aware and be honest with yourself about your body type, your cardio, your all of the things that are particular to you. And you have to start kind of moving away from your sensei's game. And so once I got the purple belt, I spent all of my training at 
AOJ, the broken between AOJ and Ruka, the Ruka private gym was very close to AOJ and very close to my house. And so I would typically go to Ruka every single day. And, you know, that's where I would see like Marcus Bruchesha and all the guys, all the great, all the greats would come through there and train, whether MMA or Bisping and you know, no matter who it was, Tony Ferguson. And so I would go in there every single day and I would lift. And typically I would have a drilling partner, another person who was my level. And it was great because at Ruka, there were a few like really high level black belts that Pat Sonori who started Ruka who, who were there. And so, you know, Chrome Gracie would come through. So I had this this ability not only to train there with people, but people would be in there and I could ask them questions. Circling back to what we were talking about, I would, starting in Purple Belt, I would split my time. I was in Ruka every day and I would drill for like an hour or two every day on the things that I needed to work on. And then I would go to AOJ and then those things that I had questions on, I would typically ask them. Starting after, after, you know, midway through my purple belt, there wasn't like the classes and the things that were being shown at AOJ. I would always pick up a detail, but it was, it was rarely something I hadn't seen before. I I don't Mm. think at purple belt, once you reach that higher, those higher levels of purple belt, there's not much I, I didn't know or hadn't seen. You know, at that point, I started really incorporating the lapel into my game. That's a huge part of my guard. I'm a guard player before everything else. I find that really interesting that all of a sudden I heard that you were playing what people would call Keenan's type of, you know, what he sort of innovated. Yeah, you that's right. Because that. as your body type and having seen you compete, I wouldn't have pegged you as that type. But it seems like that's a long person's game, but I think that's a misnomer. It is a misnomer. And the reason that, well, it's funny because I remember, I think I was a white belt and I walked into Metamorphs, like the first Metamorphs, I think it was. And I remember walking in and the match was going on and it was probably a steamer and he was playing like a spider guard with a lapel. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, that is amazing. So I became very intrigued with that game and it always was there for me where I was like, oh, that's really cool. I want to learn it. But taking into consideration the fact that I didn't start jujitsu until I was 43, one thing I had to be very cognizant of because at AOJ, we've got so many kids like Tynan and Jonathan Alves and Colabate. These kids have cardio for days. I would never have, you'll never recapture your cardio no matter what you do. Strength, yeah, I'm strong, but strong as them. But cardio is just something you cannot freaking recapture. So what I realized was playing lapel slowed them down. And so it allowed me to control the match. Hmm. And that's why I started incorporating the lapel game into Hmm. my guard. But back to your comment on a long person's game. I think at first I started just using like Braulio did the spider lapel or the lapel applata, things like that. But then I moved to the warm guard and I started playing warm guard. And the reality is I found a video from Hoppe that Hoppe was teaching a seminar. I think even before Keenan had really come out with the warm guard. And I saw the video that Hoppe that was out there of Hoppe teaching a seminar and teaching the warm guard. And like I said, I think this was even before Keenan had like named it the warm guard. And so he laid out all the steps and I started figuring that out. And I went to him. That was the beauty of it is even though I wasn't necessarily getting things from the classes or it wasn't my direct, like the source of what I was focusing on, I would be able to obviously go to him and say, listen, man, what's going on with this, 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 and this. 
here's the reality. You know, there's this this confluence and flood of people putting out from blue belts to everyone putting out videos now of techniques. The reality is, man, you're missing the details that make those things work. Like I watch them and I'm like, oh my God, not another video, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was able to go to the source and say, what am I missing here? I know I saw you teach this in this video, but where am I doing this, this, and this? So anyways, I went to him. I learned all the details of the worm guard, but the reality is, is that as I started trying to use it in sparring, it wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working is because it is a long person's game. Mm. And so the worm guard did not work for me. I mm. never use it in competition. I'll use it every once in a while to tie someone up, but I know that it's a transitional move and I'm not going to be able to use it. What I then transitioned to was Squid Guard. And Squid Guard is very much like K-Guard in Nogi. And so Squid Guard became my number one guard. That is my number one guard. I'm more compact and that game works perfectly, man. It sets up everything from, you know, Tommy Langer's The Matrix to the Pella Plata to Close Guard. I often use it to guys when they start getting tied up in the Squid Guard start kind of panicking and they'll fall down into closed guard. As soon as they go into closed guard, I start transitioning right into controlling them over the back. Sometimes I'll even play like a rubber guard with that lapel guard. I play a lot of rubber guard in Nogi. I'm very flexible. Yeah. And so I'll put that over the my own leg and control their posture that way. There's a what whole system that I use with that squid guard. Yeah, obviously you have your paths and your transitions and everything that leads to it or that goes from it. So prior to the lapel game, then what was your go-to game? Oh, I mean, it, you know, I one of my drilling partners, you know, and uh, his name's Jay Red, a black belt at AOJ. He's like, I don't see why you do all this lapel because your De La Hiva and Baron Bolo is so strong, you know? Mm, I mean, mm. through and through, I'm a Baron Bolo De La Hiva guy. <laughs> Wow. Um, okay. Without question. So, I mean, that's probably even more my go-to than the lapel. So, but I'm always setting it up. You know, the moment a competition starts, I'm trying to get the lapel out as we're standing before I even get my grips. I want to get those lapels loose so that if I pull guard and I start playing De La Hiva and start going into Baron Bolo, now I can't get it. I often equate when I'm teaching or, you know, even in videos that the reality is, is for me, and, and you look historically that a lot of people think that jujitsu came from samurai, right? When they lost their swords on the field, it was a way for them to be able to still engage in combat and uh, protect themselves. So I'm always looking back to, you know, the mental training of Musashi and all that but also I'm thinking about a sword fighter where I'm like, okay, a sword fighter is not, we're not fighting with an ax. A samurai is not just, blah, blah, and that's how many, so many people do jujitsu, right? Like yeah. I'm going to pass this side and I'm going to freaking go. And I'm not going to stop until I get it. And then they're like this, their hands, their grips are shot. They hit the wall. For me, if something doesn't work in competition, I'm all about competition. I don't care what you do in the gym. I don't care about sparring. I don't care. None of that shit matters. All of it should be preparing you for competition. And if you haven't won a competition, it's your division or whatever it is, I don't want to hear about it. You know what I mean? If what you're showing you haven't done in competition, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. That's nonsense. I don't want to hear about what happens in the gym. The gym is just to prepare us for competition. And so back to what we were talking about, when I'm playing guard and I'm playing my Barambola game and my De La Hiva, 
I'm rolling on my left shoulder yeah. and I'm trying to get around the back to dump you to get around the back to either burn bowl and come underneath and take the back or come up to leg drag. And if I can't get it on that side, it's like pairing, like a samurai pairing left, right, left, right. This is really, you don't want to waste too much energy going with the pairing because what you're trying to do is open up your opponent for the attack. And so many people get caught up wasting energy going, trying left and right. No, no, no. A samurai is that you have like a feather and you're just boom when there's an attack. And I think of jujitsu in the same way, whether it's passing or playing guard. And so I'm trying not to waste energy. I'm trying to open my opponent up. So as I have a grip and I'm barren bowling and Dilla heaving, if I can't get it to left, I'm immediately switching to the right, grabbing the lapel and trying to hit the squid guard. If I can't get that, mm. then maybe I'll go underneath right? It's single leg X and trying even just a simple kid sweep, then back to Dela Higo on the left, back to the lapel on the right. At some point, some, there's something that's going to open up. You've mentioned that massive gains are not made in rolling. So where are they made? Drilling. I mean, drilling, drilling, drilling. I mean, that's what, again, the greatest samurai that ever lived, Musashi. That's what the mission mind, you know, is all about was if you're thinking during a battle or competition, then you have already lost. The mind is slow. Don't trust the mind. It's motion mind, mind without mind. And so the only way that he advocated, and I learned this from Papa and Keenan, they both advocated the motion mind, which is you only freaking can eliminate the mind when you have drilled something so many times that it becomes muscle and part of your instinct. And so if you are only like sparring and you're not getting enough reps with sparring and we're doing something a thousand times, then when you get into the competition, you're going to freeze, you know? And, and as you get older, you know, I, I really have started just recently pushing like my master jets Instagram account to like, to tell people, listen, if you're over 30, you can't spar every day. I was just talking to Tommy Langenkirk on my podcast where I, we were, Tommy and I were talking and, you know, he was finally like, I realized in my training, I can't spar like I used to. I'm now 30 years old. I'm like, yep, welcome to it. You know, yeah. welcome to the rest of us. Cause most yeah. of us that do <laughs> are over 30, yeah. you know? So you mentioned drilling. Drilling can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Can you give me an example of what drilling is for you? Yeah, I always, I'll grab my partner and I'll be playing guard, right? Or I'll be on my back, you know, playing guard and I'll get my grips and I'll go through my sequences of like, let's say Delaheva. And I'm, let's say I'm doing like a sit up Delaheva to deep X and passing the lapel and then taking the back and going to like a baby bowl, some kind of sequence like that or squid mm -hmm. guard. I'm getting my lapels. I'm going to there or spider guard, whatever. I'll go through the entire movement and then I'll come up and sweep. Now it's my partner's time. You now he does that. We do that over and over again, the, the entire sequence. I'm not sitting so there. We're talking you know, zero resistance here then. Yes. But the resistance builds and okay. builds until we get to like 50%. And then we're almost sparring and we're pushing and we're, we're, we're negating and we're, we're stopping and we're you know moving. And then we build it up to the point to where it becomes a real cardio workout and maybe even getting to the point where we're at 70, 80% of sparring, but it's still drilling in the sense that we've worked up to that and we're allowing our partners to get all their grips and get ready for that particular sequence that they want to work on. 
Got you. So you get to a point of live drilling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where we're just like really pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And then obviously sparring is, you know, where I'm mo- where I'm going with a different partner in the gym and he's not letting me get anything. You know, at AOJ, we would st- always start standing. So it's like real. we're simulating as much as we can the actual battle, you know, the sure. actual competition. So that's the difference. Another thing I've heard you mention before too, is that you do this uh, three and three type of training. Can you describe that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm trying to, I break up my week. I try and train six days a week. And three of those days are that type of drilling, that active drilling, maybe four days and two days are sparring. You know, it depends on how, you know, I lift every single day and I do a bunch of yoga when I go into the gym to warm up. And so, you know, if my body's overtrained, I really just try and listen to it, you know? And so mm. if I'm feeling too, if sparring is like just wrecking me too much, then I'll just drill. Someone who's like 40 plus, 50 plus here, it's so important to do all of those things that you just mentioned and stagger your training and not roll every day as much as I want to. Yeah, as much as, but you know, it, there's an itch that we need to scratch with jujitsu. So much of it is just a psychological benefit. You know, it's fun, it's tribal, you know, it's social. We, you know, there's so much that it does. It's, it keeps us active, the blood's flowing. And I get that same experience with drilling. You know, it scratches all of that for me. So it's not like I'm missing out. It's sparring for me becomes I'm now going in and I'm trying the things. Of course, there's the ego gratification from nailing things and really taking it to somebody during sparring. I love that as much as anybody else. But at the same time, I'm very cognizant that the only thing that matters is competition. Yeah, I don't care if you're masters or not. I mean, look at Megatop. I mean, he thrives on competition and he's 50, you know, he's my age. He's 53 years old. The dude is a beast and he lives for competition, you know? And at AOJ, it was always like, I remember I got a silver medal and then, and Guy was like, so he said, that sucks. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're just lucky you didn't face that person in the first round sure. and you would have lost. So the only thing that matters is gold. And that was really drilled into us. I'm not saying everybody has to be like that. I'm crazy. And that's what I love about it. I love that mm-hmm. aspect of competition, you know, but for sparring, when I go and I'm sparring, I'm picking out individuals in the gym who represent what I want to work on. So some person who plays half guard and I've been having trouble, who's really good at half guard you know, passing half guard or butterfly guard, let's say, I'll go with that person knowing that I'm going to have a difficult time. I can't let my ego get in the way of that. At the same time, there are 50 people on the mat that I could grab that I could absolutely take it to. That doesn't help my jujitsu. That's just ego. And ego doesn't help you in competition. And you train at so many various places, is it difficult for you to find 50 plus practitioners or does that even matter? I don't, I don't, I don't look for 50 plus practitioners. Mm-hmm. I'm only looking for, you know, sometimes I'll look for somebody who's 35 plus. I mean, my position is if I can't beat someone who's 35 plus and at least give them like a good, good, good round, then there's something wrong with my jujitsu. I'm not looking for someone not 50 plus. I've, I've always rolled with young, young people. And you know, the higher the level of my jujitsu and the older, you know, there's this confluence of age and technique. I've really started to say, okay, trust my sword, trust my sword and my sword being my technique. And yes, this person is younger. Yes, this person is considered a professional athlete, but I should at least with my technique, if my technique is flawless, give them a good match and have a good match. 
It's funny you mentioned the Barambola earlier because, you know, it gets poo-pooed on. It's always the poster boy of like when someone's deriding some sort of technique in jujitsu and and you picked it after 40 years old. And usually it's that crowd that's like, oh, we're going to stick to basic pressure passing and just close guard. And it sounds like you're still playing Barambola on occasion, right? At, at yeah, 50. I, yeah I, for sure. For sure. I don't, again, it's like, what's going to work for you and what works with your body type in that particular circumstance. I don't ever look at a particular move and say that there's a problem with that move. I think that's silly. It's who's your opponent? Who are you? What's your game? Have you drilled enough is it something that i mean not to to deride the a technique like the barambolo i mean you're essentially from levi to mikey musumeshi to the brothers to meow brothers to that's just stupidity you know i guess i guess it's just seen as a young man's game for instance or a young person's game that's nonsense that's Mm. nonsense that's nonsense i mean there's no if you have the flexibility it's where you know if you don't have the flexibility then there's a lot in jiu-jitsu that you can't do i make it a point to work on my flexibility every single day i'm much 10 times more flexible today than i am at 53 almost 54 than i was at 34 you know i sit in lotus position every single day i you know my hips you know as far as at aoj i was one of the more flexible people in the gym some, mm-hmm. some kid just said that to me. He's like, yeah, everyone tells me, and I was here in London at a gym, and he's like, everyone, t- I can't believe how flexible you are. Everyone tells me if, if I'm not flexible now, I'll never be flexible. And I'm just like, people are so stupid. <laughs> Don't listen to anything anybody ever tells you. Don't ever listen to anything ever, anyone ever tells you. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything else. Work on it and it'll improve. A bit of a silly question here regarding competition. I've heard you mention before that in master's division, they don't pull guard. Why don't they pull guard? It's very rare. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I don't know. It doesn't, it's mind boggling to me. I really don't understand it. You know, I don't know. Mm. I just think it's that, uh, that kind of uh, approach to jujitsu where they get in a comfort zone and they, like you're saying with the Barambola, where it's like the mindset, the mind becomes calcified. And it's like, I think when you start out, I think it's top game is much easier to understand mentally and to get. And I think that people just start playing top and they just never put themselves in that uncomfortable position of that vulnerable emotional or mental state of learning, you know, guard, you know, it's, it seems like it's a very, I don't know. It seems like I think to some people that you're in a more vulnerable position, you know, you're in an inferior position, I guess. But, you know, when I was a blue belt, I recognized that my guard, I didn't understand guard or have it. And being a wrestler, I was always like, well, my game's going to be so unbalanced, right? If I don't start playing guard. So for an entire year, I didn't play top. I only played guard. So that was an entire year of my jujitsu in which I didn't use something that I was good at which was my top game because I was arrested. And so I, and I'm not saying I was great because I was, but I was better. And I would tell every single opponent when I sparred for that year, we're going to go to sweep or pass. If I sweep you, we're starting over. If you pass my guard, we're starting over. And they were always like, yeah, okay. I'm like, I'm working on my guard. And if someone wouldn't do, wouldn't do that, then I wouldn't train it. I'm very much of the mindset that I don't owe you anything in the gym. It's my body. It's my time. It's my rules. Right. And if we don't have, we can't reach an understanding regarding sparring, then I'm not interested. I also, you know, I compete at lightweight. I weigh 160. 
I don't spar with people that are over like 180, 185. I'm not interested in that. I don't compete in open division. I've seen too many people get hurt training with bigger guys. And so I have zero interest in doing that. So I'm very, very like aggro about when people ask me, I'm like, no. And they can't, sometimes guys get butthurt. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> because one time I was training at USC headquarters with Fred Sampasha, who's a three-time world champion. And one of his students, he was a bodyguard for USC. It was while Fredson was showing us something. And the guy kind of kneeled down on my leg. And I thought he tore my ACL wow. because he was 240 pounds. And it made me realize I don't have any business training with someone that big. And so I just got to the point where I was like, nope, not going to do it. Don't care. Because an injury at 50 years old puts you out for much longer, maybe twice as long as oh, someone yeah. who's 18. And so I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. And so I also think that goes to, I know not everybody has this luxury, but it also goes to where you should be training at a gym where the instructors are your size. We had several people that left AOJ and went down and started training at Autos because they were 200 and something pounds. Mm-hmm. One of those guys used to ask me at AOJ to train all the time. I was like, nope, never going to train with you. You know, he used to get upset. And I was like, too bad. I'm not training with you, man. But the reason is, is because that jujitsu that the brothers do is very different than the jujitsu that Joao Assis or some of Orlando Sanchez or some of these bigger guys do, or even Bouchesha. It's a completely different set of techniques. Mm-hmm. So like I, I trained with uh, Leandro Lowe the other day in, uh, or a couple of months back at Unity Gym in New York City in Manhattan. And I know him, Leandro. I've met him several times because I'm such good friends with Bouchesha. So I was like, okay, I'll train with you. It was cool. I wanted to feel like how he moved and his passing and what he did. And it was amazing. But yeah. he is so good at jujitsu. He would never hurt. He knows what he's doing, right? But at the same time, also, his jujitsu is very different than mine. I don't like look to him and aspire to be like Leandro Lowe because he's too big. It's different. Mm. So getting back to competition and your competition mindset, going in, are you interested in points? And do you have a strategy like going in typically? And how has yeah. that evolved? Yes. I mean, I am thinking like when we roll at AOJ, we'll keep points, man. I mean, it is all about, I'm thinking about every single advantage. I am mm. thinking about everything. Like, Are you sub-orientated no. or points-orientated? No, or absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not thinking about the sub. I'm thinking about advancing my position. Like, I, for instance, like I would roll with Kolobate, and typically the only way I could deal with that kid was wrestling. So, we, we, like I said, we always start standing. I would take him down. The moment I took him down, I would be like, hold on, stop. And I put my fingers up to everybody at the gym and say, I just scored two points on him. You know, that's the mindset that we have at AOJ. We are so competition focused that to get up by an advantage, I have won several matches and lost by an advantage. Mm. And so, no, I'm not thinking about subs until I establish at least an advantage over somebody. Once I get an advantage or I get my two points, then I start looking to advance my position. It's very systematic. So I need to get my grips. The first thing I'm thinking in, in competition is get my grips. I'm not thinking about a sub. I'm thinking about get my grips. So I get my grips. 
then I start looking to advance my position with either a sweep or a pass, whatever it is. Once I accomplish that, then I'm in a position where I could start thinking about a sub. It's like that old, you know, that old cliche, you know, position before submission. And in position, we gain points. That's how we get our advantages or our points. Once I get my position, then I start worrying about a, a submission. Until then, no. So Nick, why didn't you ever open an academy? You know, it's something that I, I've always wrestled with and, and thought about doing. I was recently in Florida and I was thinking about opening an academy there. And, you know, maybe at some point I will, but there's so much of the world that I want to see. You know, I, I always look at life and I always kind of have in a way that life is a simulation, you know, and I want to see as much of it as I can. You know, I want to see, I want to live. And for me, being a nomad and traveling so much, for me, I realized that traveling and visiting somewhere for a few weeks, you'll never really get the experience of that location, you know, and those those people and that culture and that tribe. And so it's only in coming to London last year for four months and getting on the train every day and getting on the bus and using the public transportation, all the ins and outs of what it means to live in London. It's only then that I'm like, okay, I get what it means to be someone who lives in London. And so for me to open an academy, I can't really do that. When we were traveling in the van, I was in Seaside, Oregon, and the Adamson brothers are up there, and they're now very close friends of mine. And so we just lived at the gym, and we train every single day. And I would we would go out to their farm in the woods, and they actually have a hip camp there. Yeah, dudes, they're in like BJJ camps, and we would surf. You know, we would surf together. We hung out every day. In fact, he came all the way to Florida and was just with me in Florida. Anyways, I got to see this is what it's like to live in Seaside, Oregon, and to be you know living the Pacific Northwest. That was awesome. I've lived in Southern Cal. That's why I don't live in Southern California anymore because I did it. I want to yeah. see more. I've lived in New Orleans, from New Orleans. I've lived in Florida. I've lived all these different places. And I've lived in London now. And next, we're going to uh, Italy. I've got a, a gym in Sicily, Cicero, Cicero Costa gym in uh, Palermo, yeah. Ruben uh, Sabio mm-hmm. has a gym there. And so I'll be training there and living there and getting my Italian citizenship and training That's with awesome. him. And yeah, probably start training, you know, doing seminars all throughout Europe and Italy. And I think we're talking about doing like a jujitsu summer camp there. Yeah. And I want to live in Japan. And I, you know, we only have the only true currency in life is time. And so for me to open a gym would really anchor me down to one specific place. And I'm just not willing to do that. Nick, you look very strong. And I know fitness has been an important part of your life forever. It seems like what's your training look like outside of jujitsu? I love resistance bands too. So I was interested that you're interested in that and especially traveling. How are you managing all that? Uh, you know, when it, the van was a very different set of circumstances because, you know, we were COVID and gyms were closed. So, you know, I just loaded up a couple dumbbells and resistance bands. And I would just, and luckily when we got to Seaside, Oregon, the Adamson, they had adjacent, there was a warehouse adjacent to the gym there. And so they had some weights in there. I mean, I'm big, I use resistance bands, but I prefer to use actual free weights and dumbbells. And, you know, yeah, I've lifted my whole life. I try and lift every 
every single day. I try and live every single day of my life, mm-hmm. even if it's just for 10, 15 minutes. I don't care. But if you're I, injured, I, I just work something else. <laughs> you know, I'm always injured. I mean, we always yeah. have injured. Yeah, I just work something else or I work light or I just do something around the injury. But I look at jujitsu the same way I look at weightlifting where I'm like, your results don't matter. Plant the tree, water it. Hopefully it bears fruit, but I don't care if it bears fruit. All that matters is I've done my work. And so I try in every single day to go into walk through the door of the jujitsu gym. I don't care what happens. I always say that either I'm a hammer or I'm a nail. One day I do really well in jujitsu. The next day I do terrible. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. All that matters is competition. And it's the same thing with uh, with lifting. I just go through the doors. I don't kill myself, but I'm there. And I lift every day, at least 15, 20 minutes. Consistency yeah. over intensity. And I noticed that you eat clean. I know you're not doing any supplements or anything like that, correct? No. I don't think for me, health isn't about what I, it's not about what I put in my body, meaning supplements and anything, TRT, anything like that. I don't do any of it. I don't, I don't even take vitamin C. I think it's not about what you put in your body. It's about what you don't put in your body. So mm-hmm. I try and eat very, very, very clean. I try and eat, you know, salads and vegetables every day. And I try and keep my weight down to a competition level. I try and stay at like 159, 160 all the time. You know yeah. what I am interested in, and I've heard you mention before because I am, uh, you know, I've done bulletproof coffee forever. Is your your type of coffee? I heard you were making some sort of interesting coffee with like flaxseed and all this stuff. And can you describe yeah, what, do, that, I, what that is? I do gorilla coffee, which just a recipe that I came up with based on bulletproof, where I do olive oil instead of any kind of butter and uh, really light olive oil, so I don't taste it. But I put flaxseed meal for gut biome and uh, almond butter, raw almond butter, and stevia to sweeten it. Mm. and turmeric and that's it and just that's like my breakfast so i don't need anything i'm very much on you know trying to you know lessen the stress from digestion that's a big part of my uh, my health care what makes a great jujitsu student i think just humility and just humility and dedication hopefully you have a sensei that's going to really be able to guide you at least until you get out of the woods into your purple belt to where you really start understanding the, the whole game. You're not going to understand it until then. I mean, until you're on the verge of your brown belt, you're not going to understand it. And then once you get to your black belt, you realize you're just a white belt. So, you, know, <laughs> you're just, you just realize, I mean, I have so much to learn. I have so much, you know, I just look at, you know, some of these guys, like I said, like Megaton, I just got a coral belt. Mm-hmm. You know, you, the brothers that have dedicated their lives to the sport and they're constantly what makes them are keen in what makes so many of these guys so great and girls is they're constantly trying to innovate their own game. And I think as long as, you know, you and that takes humility and to understand that you're not great and, you know, you'll never be great. And it's really about the techniques. And I think that when you have that, when you realize your sparring partners in the gym are just there to help you, they're a canvas on which you're practicing your painting and you can remove your ego from that. I really try and emphasize to people that notion, don't quit thinking about beating your sparring partners. Yes, you want to, but really more important than that, you need to put yourself in a position with people who you can smoke to allow to try new things. But I think if you don't compete, it's very easy to forget that. And then you attach too much to that sparring. So I guess you kind of answered it, but what makes a great instructor? 
That's, that's a good question. You know, I mean, I think a great instructor is someone who can look at every student individually and takes the time and cares and understands what the goals of that particular student are. Some students, you know, they don't want to compete and that's okay. Some students don't necessarily even enjoy sparring and that's okay to understand what each student needs. And then to at least be able to, I know that, you know, you have a DOJ or 1500 students. So it's hard to do, but to at least be able to identify what a student is looking, what their goals are, and then to help them achieve their goals and to, to understand, you know, a person's game, where they're, you know, so much of it like of that, I think has to do with, I want to say, oh, you need to be able to look at as a student's weaknesses, but for every student, it's different. You know, as a student coming in, are they 14 years old and they want to be a professional athlete? You know, that's very different. That student right there, who's 14 right there, you have to be relentless with that student. That student is not allowed to drink water in comp class. That student is pushed to the point of breaking. That's how we did it in wrestling. You need to break that student so that they're not broken in competition. And But that's a very different thing than someone who's 37 years old and their kids are training. They just want to be have a little bit of a tribe and a social circumstance. I didn't train like that. I trained for competition. For me at AOJ, it was just a continuation of my wrestling. And wrestling is a brutal, brutal sport. For me, it was very different. An instructor needs to understand what that student, what their goals are in life. Can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit and why? No, I never wanted to quit. Every time that I that I lost in a competition and I just wanted to kill myself, you know, I mean, metaphor, you know, figuratively. But I was just so despondent, you know, it just motivated me to go back and keep going. But yeah, never, never like a hardcore in, catastrophic injury or anything like that. They were like, oh, God. No, I just had neck surgery on my neck where I had three discs replaced in my neck. And I was Yikes. rolling back drilling within six weeks like an idiot. <laughs> doing bare <No>. bolas <laughs> yeah i'm never i'm not i never wanted to quit i'll never quit i just i enjoy it too much and I, you know i might like, it'll change as i get older when i'm 60 and 70 years old you know maybe it'll just be just flowing as time goes on i mean jujitsu can become there's a beauty in it that's like you know i achieve that flowing is is a beautiful thing but it takes a lot of technique for me in my mind to achieve that level of mastery where the flow is just effortless and it's just everything's connecting. It just takes a lot of dedication and drilling to get there. I mean, I don't like, I, like I tell people, I don't, they're like, what guard do you play? I'm like, there is no guard. Guard is a particular guard. There's only one guard and it's called guard. It's open guard for me. When I'm playing Dela Eva, I'm playing Spider. When I'm playing Spider, I'm playing single leg X. I'm playing, you know, there's nothing. I'm playing like, uh, it's, it's all together. It all flows together. I want to get your thoughts on the belt system. You've seen Cole seems to be the poster boy for this. You know, he was a blue belt, smashing all these black belts. Let's say Nick's king of the IBJJF world or belt world. Are things the way they should be? Should there be some sort of rethinking of the belt system? No, I, I think it's perfect the way it is. I think that uh, also you got to realize I started day one with, with the Rotolos when they were like eight years old. They were already black belts. Those kids already had the technical expertise, not only the knowledge, but the expertise of black belts. The only thing I think this should change, I, I think the belt system is perfect. The only thing I think should change is I think in IBJJF, there should be a professional division. I think I, yeah. the idea I agree. that this adult's 
because it's not fair. If I start jujitsu at 22 years old and I enter a competition as a blue belt, now you're telling me I need to go up against Cole Bate or the Rotolos and that's fair? No, right. it's not fair. So create a, an entire separate professional division at every single belt so that a 22 or 27 year old, a 28 year old, you know, can go. And then once you get to masters, masters is amateur. Mm-hmm. Masters is the amateur. I don't care who you are, whether you're Zanjay or the Meows or Megaton or me or whatever. It's it's not professional. Adult is professional. And I think that should be separated just for the fairness for those kids who are 25 years old. But as far as belts, no, I think it's perfect the way it is. Let's talk about some of your content because I'm very interested in that. You mentioned uh, Masters Jits. I've seen a lot of those videos initially. Actually, that was some of the first stuff that I've seen of recently of what you've done. It's I really like it. The videos that you put out in terms of like just all the conceptual stuff and the uh, sort of the podcast or if you can call it that, I guess it's kind of video blog type of thing you have on YouTube for Masters Jits. Mm-hmm. Is that just starting? Yeah, I just started that. And uh, so when I get to Italy, then I'm going to start posting a lot of that. I'll be I'll be recording a lot of that with Ruben, uh, Sibio, like that Cicero, Costa, Palermo, and I'll start putting a lot of that out. But that's all geared towards people. For the majority of us, the cool. biggest competition in the world is you know, the master world. And so I'll be focusing for the most part on, you know, for people over 30, which is the majority. So Modus V podcast, Infinite Worlds podcast, your sci-fi books. Can you touch on some of that yeah. stuff? Yeah. The, the Modus V, I've been doing Modus V podcasts. I do it pretty intermittently. I've been putting up podcasts, man, it's got to be like eight, seven, eight years. And so there's a, an entire library of early interviews with this is like when podcasts first started with the Mendez brothers and, you know, I've got Bouchesha on there and all kinds of people. And so I do that every once in a while. I'm probably going to be continue to do that, but I'll be focusing more on the video series and video techniques and health and all that and, mm-hmm. and fitness and, you know, and diet and things like that. Just things that, you know, the questions that I get tend to be, you know, how are you in such good shape at this age? What do you do? And also techniques, you know, techniques mm-hmm. that actually work for people who are tend to be older because like I said, a lot of the techniques that I see on there, I'm like, those are non, I call them YouTube modes because it's like that will never work in competition. It's not going to work. It's cool. It looks cool, but so does Bruce Lee Kung Fu. It looked cool. Doesn't work in the cage, you know, but it's cool. (laughs) It's acrobatics. I like acrobatics like everybody else, but it ain't self-defense. So I'm a, I'm a lifelong sci-fi lover. I love sci-fi. Obviously, I love The Matrix, but you know I love all sci-fi. It's like my jam. And so I've had, for the past few years, I've had a uh, podcast with Infinite Worlds magazine, where I'm a co-host, and we just cover all things sci-fi. And so I'm also a sci-fi writer. I put out stories, and I've got a book that I'm finishing up right now, and so called Arc Zero, and that'll be out soon, probably in a year. And so, yeah, it's all good, man. I'll be posting a lot of things on on Italy and Europe. And so the blog series is really my wife and I are going to start up like a lot of videos. And again, you know, this comes of my travels. And I think, you know, we talk about technique and we talk about diet and we talk about health and we talk about all those things about jujitsu. But to me, the most important aspect of jujitsu is the tribe. And so for me, it's like everywhere I go, like I said, I hit the ground and I'm like, 
who am I going to hang out with? You know, where am I going to train? Who am I going to hang out with? What am I going to, that's what I love more than anything else. Because you and I can enter a room together where if there's 50 people there, we could feel so alone. But if we find each other, we can instantly talk jujitsu and we have an instant brotherhood. We have the same vernacular. We have the same everything. Who did you train with? Who did you da, da, da. We could talk for five hours where everyone else is like kind of looking at us. And that to me is the real beauty of jujitsu. That's a yeah. wonderful way of looking at it. Yeah. So Nick, I want you to be able to enjoy your coffee and your breakfast here and wait, you don't eat breakfast. So your coffee and your morning time yes. here. Nick, where can we get uh, more information about you and everything that you're doing? Right now, the best way to follow me is at Nick the Tooth on Instagram, but there's also Master's Jits on Instagram. So those two are kind of interlinked. And once I hit the ground, my wife and I are going to get a permanent place finally after years of being nomads and uh, once we get to Sicily. And so that'll be kind of our home base to just to be settled and then travel around all of Europe. I'll be going to Norway, training with Tommy and Italian BJJ media in the middle of Italy. Just hit me. They want me to come up and teach some seminars. And so I'll be traveling all around. And But initially, that's where you can find uh, Nick the Tooth and Master's Jets on Instagram. Well, everyone, thanks again for uh, listening to another episode of Forever White Belt. I'm Adolfo Fronto, your host. And give us the thumbs up on all the socials. We really appreciate you. And Nick, thank you so much for your time. I couldn't thank you enough. Appreciate it, man. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. I'm so sorry, but I had to have coffee. You're still on. I'm so sorry. <laughs>